Well, good morning, Hope Bible Church. I bring you greetings this morning from the saints gathered, even right now this very moment in Wilmington, Delaware at Grace Community Church. They send me with their greetings and their love for you. Uh, what a wonderful uh, what a wonderful time it is for me to be able to be here with you. Thank you to the elders for inviting me to come and preach. I always love to be able to have the opportunity to come back and to be able to uh, worship with all of you and minister alongside of you. I've been uh, there at the church in Delaware for, for right at 10 years now, coming up on our 10th anniversary there. And and really, uh, Hope Bible Church is is a part of our story there in Delaware. Uh, there are a lot of uh, firsts that you have when you move to a new place. I'll always remember October 31st, 2011. That was the very first time that I, a Florida boy moving to the Mid-Atlantic, ever saw snow. And it was in the parking lot. It was in the parking lot of the old building uh, at the uh, Mid-Atlantic Bible Conference is what it was called at the time. And I remember uh, being there and, and having everyone make fun of me because I've never seen snow up until that point. <laughs> Uh, so some deep, deep friendships come out of uh, mutual mockery. So I still have some of those friends. Uh, so a lot of a lot of first, a lot of friendships, and then of course the the biggest first and the biggest friendship that's come out of my relationship with this church is is my friendship with Pastor Tom. Uh, my my friendship with Pastor Tom was the first friendship I had up here. I, I did not know any other pastors. I didn't know any other people up here. And one of the very first people that I had the opportunity to meet was was Pastor Tom, and he took me under his wing. Uh, he befriended me. He was praying for me. He was looking out for me. Uh, he and Sue have, have been such sweet friends to, to my wife, Elise, and I over these past 10 years. And, and so what a, what a wonderful connection that that relationship between two pastors has forged between two churches. Uh, and even now, being able to come back and, and worship with you, my, my, my heart is filled with thanksgiving, and my mind is filled with, with so many memories, uh, so many memories, especially of, of your pastor, Pastor Tom, and, and all the different ways he instilled wisdom in me and shared his convictions with me. And, and I can't help but think, but you guys probably feel a lot of the same way. Uh, that a lot of the convictions that this church shares were convictions that that were shepherded into you. And that's why it's so encouraging for me to be with you, to share the same convictions that you do about God's Word, share the same love for God's people that you share, and have the opportunity to open up God's Word together. So let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, this morning we're going to be looking together at John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And I've entitled this morning's message, Prophetic Insight into Gospel Ministry. See, in John chapter 3, we, we are jumping into a larger section of John's gospel that records how people responded to the public ministry of Christ. You see, Christ announced his public ministry in a very profound way in John chapter 2 when he went and cleared out the temple. You remember he made the homemade whip and he overturned the tables and he exercised his authority really in a miraculous way by single-handedly cleaning out and purifying his father's house. 
From that time on, there was a public announcement that Jesus has arrived. There is a new public and religious figure. And, and, and for some people, for many people, this seemed like a good thing. In fact, in fact, at the end of chapter 2, it says, Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So initially, there was a very positive response to what Jesus was doing. However, it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. In other words, he knew that people were positive about him, but many did not truly believe in him. And that was the tension of the response to Christ's ministry. And and you continue to see this mixed bag of a response in John chapter 3. For instance, earlier, before this passage we are going to study this morning in John chapter 3, you would read about Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus who exemplifies exactly what the end of chapter 2 says. He had a positive view of Christ, but he didn't have a saving view of Christ. The, the, The chief teacher, the teacher of Israel, initially liked what he saw about Christ, but as Christ exposed, he needed to be born again. He didn't understand what it was to truly believe in Christ. That was his response to the public ministry of Jesus. And As we turn to our passage this morning, we again are going to see a response to the public ministry of Christ, this time not on the part of the greatest teacher of Israel, but on the part of the greatest prophet in Israel, John the Baptist. So look with me, John chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 32, and and just a word of of warning, apology, what have you. I'll be reading out of the ESV. I know uh, most of you or many of you have the NAS. It's very close, uh, uh, but, but I grabbed my ESV this morning, so you'll have to be patient with me in that regard. But John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, this is the response of John the Baptist to the public ministry of Christ, and this is significant because John the Baptist was the most significant religious figure in Israel at that time. In fact, not just the most significant religious figure in Israel at that time, but the greatest prophet that the world had ever seen up to that point. You'll remember from reading through the Gospels that John was born through miraculous provision. 
His father, Zechariah, was told by the angel that he would have a son. And Zechariah struggled to believe it. And the angel said, great, you'll have a sign from the Lord. You won't be able to talk, which is a, which is a good reminder. Trust the Lord the first time. But John was born through the miraculous provision of God. And, and even in some way that's difficult for us to understand, he was even empowered by the Spirit in the womb to be the very first person to recognize Christ who is also in the womb. Thus, by the way, proving the sanctity of human life that starts even before birth. But John was born through miraculous provision. Additionally, uh, John the Baptist was the most popular religious figure in that time. Everybody knew who John the Baptist was. In Mark chapter 1, verse 4, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River and confessing their sins. Everyone knew who John the Baptist was. This this was a significant religious figure in Jesus' day. In in fact, he was such a a significant religious figure, not only in Jesus' day, but, but in all of redemptive history, that we can say from the Scripture that John the Baptist was the very last prophet of the Old Covenant. The the end of John's ministry marks the end of the Old Covenant era. Luke 16, 16 says the law and the prophets, that's the old covenant, the law and the prophets were until John. That is a significant statement about a significant prophet. And and if that was not enough to convince you that John is an important figure in biblical history, Jesus himself in Matthew 11, 11 says, truly I say to you, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So not only was he the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, but up to that point, he was the greatest human being who had ever lived. The Lord was using him in significant and mighty ways. His ministry had an impact that maybe no other prophet since Moses had ever had on the people of Israel. And as you think about the significance of John the Baptist, have you ever stopped and wondered what happened to John after Jesus arrived? I mean, John's whole ministry was about preparing the way for Christ. So what happened when Christ actually arrived? I mean, there was about about six months of overlap where John's still publicly ministering and yet Jesus has already arrived. What happened during that time? How did John handle that? Was that difficult for him? Was it difficult for him to see his ministry coming to an end? Was it difficult for him to to be losing his prominence? How did John respond to this? How did John handle this transition? Well, if you've ever wondered that very thing, wonder no more because this passage gives us the answer to that very question. This passage records the response of John the Baptist to the arrival of the public ministry of Christ Jesus. And and it tells us what happened during this period of overlap. In fact, look at verse 22. It 
says in verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So, so now Jesus has, has gone out into the Judean countryside, the very place where John the Baptist was ministering before. Jesus now goes there and begins his ministry. Jesus was preaching, and, and, and through his ministry, many were being baptized. In chapter 4, verse 2, we learn that Jesus never actually physically baptized anyone. His disciples were doing it, but these baptisms were taking place under the authority of his ministry. Jesus set up a, a base of operations and began his public ministry. And then we find in verse 23 that at the same time, John the Baptist, it says, was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful, plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Now, there's, there's some difficulty in, in figuring out exactly where Anon near Salim was. You can't find it on Google Maps, unfortunately. And, and uh, historical scholars trying to dig through the geography of the ancient world, they, they have a little bit of a hard time figuring out uh, where this location was. There's really two main options, but, but the most important thing that you need to understand is that, to the best of our knowledge, both of those possible locations were in the region of Samaria which means John was no longer in the south in Judea near Jerusalem where the Jews were, but, but instead he had moved out of that area. Jesus was there instead, and now he was in the region of Samaria where the Samaritans were. And if you know your Bible, you know the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along very well. This was the undesirable place to go. This was the obscure place to go. You say, why did John go there? Well, we don't know exactly why. It, it may be that he had, in chapter 1, declared the Lamb of God has arrived. And so Jesus starts ministering in Judea, and he says, I've got to go find other places where they're not ready for Christ, and I've got to prepare them for Christ. That may have been part of it. We know at least some part of it was the fact that there was a lot of water where he went which, by the way, is a, is a good argument for our view of bapti uh, baptism, isn't it? When you baptize somebody, you've got to get them all the way under. John could have gone anywhere if you could sprinkle somebody. No, you put them all the way under. So he went up to minister to these undesirable Samaritans, and he found a spot where there is enough water where he could totally immerse these Samaritans in his baptism of repentance. And verse 24 says, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now that seems almost like a strange statement there. Some translations even make it a parenthetical statement as if this is just kind of an add-on thing. But I think this is actually a significant statement. It's significant because if you read in the other gospel accounts, you find that Jesus did not begin proclaiming the, the new covenant message. He didn't begin proclaiming the gospel in full until John had been arrested first. In fact, if you were to read Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, 
So after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So, so Jesus did not begin to proclaim the full gospel message of the new covenant in all of its details until after John was arrested. We, we read the same thing in Matthew chapter 4, in Matthew's accounting of, of all these details. Matthew chapter 4, it talks about the, the arrest of John the Baptist, and then Jesus withdraws to Galilee. And then in Matthew four seventeen it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So up until this point, John had preparing people, hey, the Messiah's coming, the kingdom's coming, you need to start getting ready. And it wasn't until after John the Baptist had been arrested that Jesus then began to preach, the Messiah is here. Entrance into the kingdom is through me. I have arrived. It is now. And all of that's significant for our passage this morning. Because what this means is that the message that Jesus was preaching and the baptism that Jesus was overseeing was the exact same message and the exact same baptism that John was doing. Jesus was not and his disciples were not baptizing with Christian baptism. That had not begun yet. Romans chapter 6 says in baptism, it signifies that we have been buried with Christ when you go all the way under the water, and then you've been raised with Christ when you come out of the water. Jesus had not been buried and resurrected yet, which means Christian baptism hadn't begun yet. So what was Jesus preaching? What was he having his disciples do? It was the same baptism of repentance and the same message of preparation that John the Baptist had been proclaiming. Which means Jesus and John were doing the exact same ministry at the exact same time, except now Jesus was doing it in a better location with with a greater scope of ministry and a greater impact of ministry. In other words, Jesus was doing it bigger and better than John ever had done. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. He's preaching the same message, but to much greater effect. And this is interesting because of the way that John responds to this. You see, the way John the Baptist responds to this, it it reveals a lot about his own heart for ministry, and it also gives us insight into how we should think about ministry. Uh, Specifically, in this passage, the greatest prophet who ever lived provides us with four insights into how we should think about ministry. Four insights into how we as believers should think about gospel ministry that come straight from John the Baptist. We find the first of these insights in verses 25 to 27. Here we see the need to recognize God's sovereignty. The need to recognize God's sovereignty. In other words, We need to recognize that our place of ministry and our place in ministry both come from God, who is sovereign over ministry. 
the, the gifts that we possess, the opportunities that we have, the results that we see. Ultimately, all of that is up to God. If you want to avoid bitterness in ministry, if you want to remain content in ministry, then part of what you need to do is to make sure that you are fully convinced of God's sovereignty in your ministry. God's sovereignty became a big issue in John's ministry in verse 25 because of a dispute that arose, a discussion that arose. Verse 25 says, Now a discussion or dispute arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Of course, this was not a mere discussion. It's better translated a dispute, a debate, a disagreement. This wasn't uh, mutually respecting individuals talking through an issue. This was the kind of discussion that would take place between me and my little brother when we were kids over baseball or football or something like that. This was somebody coming and criticizing John's ministry and criticizing his disciples. Some random critic who the text tells us was, all the text tells us about him was that he was a Jew. And it probably adds that because they were in the region of Samaria. So it wasn't a Samaritan. It was a Jewish guy who came upon John and his ministry. And, and he came up and, and he began to argue with John's disciples over the issue of purification. The idea of water cleansing. Now, this was an issue that Jesus already said was unnecessary. If you, if you, if you wash your hands, that's good for your cleanliness, but it does nothing for your sanctification, right? There, there's nothing about that ceremony that, that can save or sanctify. That's clear from the Gospels. But as to what this argument, dispute over purification was, we don't have a lot of details. The, the text doesn't tell us exactly what they were arguing about. It is interesting, beginning of verse 25 in the ESV says, now a discussion arose. I actually think a better translation is the New American Standard, which says, therefore a discussion arose. And, and, and whenever you see a therefore, you always look to see what it's there for, right? You've heard that cheesy thing a million times. You heard of dad jokes, pastor jokes, or even worse than dad jokes. So, so why would there be a therefore there? Well, John, the gospel writer, just explained Jesus was doing his ministry, and at the same time, John the Baptist was doing his ministry, and therefore, in some way connected to the fact that they were both ministering at the same time, this debate arose. Somehow, a, a disagreement about purification turned into a debate about Jesus and John both baptizing people at the same time. Maybe this random critic of the ministry tried to use John's waning influence against his disciples to say something to the effect of, look how small your crowds are. Who are you to tell me about purification? Your ministry is dying out. Why would I listen to you? Or maybe the critic was saying that John's baptism was no longer necessary. You guys are wasting your time. I just came through the Judean countryside and I was baptized by Jesus. You guys are wasting your time up here with all these Samaritans. In fact, some Bible teachers think that's exactly what happened, that this Jew may have experienced Jesus' ministry in the Judean countryside while he was traveling north and then came upon John's ministry. 
fact of the matter is, we don't know exactly what this critic was saying, but we do know what bothered John's disciples. And let me just tell you, the furthest thing from their mind was God's sovereignty over their ministry. Verse 26, here's what bothered them. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. I mean, here these disciples are running to John. And, and by the way, they are loyal to John. It's interesting, in the Gospel of John, this is the only place in the Gospel of John where somebody is referred to as rabbi besides Jesus. I mean, this is a term of respect that they're using. And, and, and also think about this. In, in John chapter 1, if you're familiar with John's Gospel at all, John pronounced, hey, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and some, if not many of John's disciples, left his ministry and went to follow Jesus. Remember that? Some of those very first disciples came from John's ministry. They, they, when they heard that Jesus was the Lamb of God, they put their two-minute notice into their boss and then left that job and went to follow Jesus. But not these guys in verse 26. They were the ones who stuck it out. They were the ones who stayed with John. They were the ones who were loyal to John the Baptist. Which is, of course, not a bad thing to be loyal to a, a godly uh, figure in your life. But along with their loyalty, there was also some jealousy, wasn't there? You know what's really interesting to me? Even more interesting than the fact that they called John rabbi is the fact that they never called Jesus by name. Did you notice that when I read verse 26? They never referred him as Jesus. John said, behold, the Lamb of God. They didn't say, hey, John, the Lamb of God is baptizing people. That would have sounded bad, right? Instead, they said, that guy who was with you, that guy that you propped up in ministry, that guy that you told everybody about, he's out there doing the same thing you're doing. And everyone is going to him. Which, by the way, that's the language of jealousy, isn't it? To always minimize other people and then maximize the suffering that you're going through. When, when our hearts are filled with, with covetous thoughts, we, we, we don't often perceive reality very accurately, do we? Is it true that all people were going out there to him? Of course not, because the text tells us that Samaritans were still coming to John the Baptist. And we know that they were coming to John the Baptist because at least one critic had came and was arguing with him. Now, those disciples might have wished that critic had gone to Jesus' ministry instead of theirs. But clearly, their hearts are jealous. You can almost hear the angst in their voice as they resent the fact that they have to deal with this critic of the ministry while Jesus and his disciples, who, by the way, used to be our colleagues, they're now getting all the crowds down in Judea. By the way, have you ever felt like this about somebody else's ministry or somebody else's life? Why does everything always happen to me? That guy over there, nothing bad ever happens to him. You think that's true? I don't think so. But that's what we do, isn't it? That's what covetous hearts do. And in the process, we lose total sight of God's sovereignty over our life and ministry. But, but notice John the Baptist did not lose sight over God's, uh, of God's sovereignty. 
God's sovereignty was John's response to his disciples' jealousy. Verse 27, John answers his disciples, and he says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. God's sovereign over all these things. Now, in the context of John chapter 3, where you learn about the doctrine of regeneration and birth from above, you read that and you might initially think, well, this is talking about salvation. You can't be saved unless it's granted to you sovereignly by God, which is absolutely true. It's just not in this verse. In this verse, John's focus is not on the doctrine of salvation. John's focus is on his own ministry. John recognized God's sovereignty in the transition from his ministry to Christ's ministry. His disciples forgot the supernatural realities that were going on. They forgot God's control. They were focusing on themselves. But John was able to say, guys, God's sovereign. The ministry that we have is the ministry that we've received from God. And by the way, the ministry that John received from God, it, it included preparing the way for Christ. Verse 28, John says, I've been sent before him. That's the ministry that John the Baptist received. Verse 29, it says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. What did Christ receive from heaven? He received the bride. He received the church. That's what he received. In other words, the the extent of their respective ministries was determined in heaven by God, which is why it was inappropriate for John's disciples to be jealous of Jesus' ministry. And John was able to discern that because he recognized that God was sovereign over his ministry. And even as we recognize these realities in John's ministry, we also recognize that God continues to be sovereign over the ministry that we have. We continue to recognize that the ministry that we have has been received by us as a gift from God. In fact, I think that's very interesting. When John's thinking about ministry, he's thinking about what he has received. John, John speaks of ministry as something you receive from God, not something that you give to God. The, the ministry we have is what God has graciously given to us. It's not something that we are going to come up with on our own and then offer to God. In other words, the ministry that we have is a gift from God. That includes the gifting that he's given to us. That includes the people that he's brought in our life. That includes the place of ministry. God is sovereign over all these things, and he has graced us with the opportunity to serve him. And that's how we are called to think about the church. 2 Corinthians 4.1 was read for you earlier. It says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Why, why do we have this ministry? Why do we have the opportunity to serve the Lord? Why do I have the opportunity to serve the Lord in preaching to you right now? Why do you have the opportunity to serve the Lord in whatever ministry you have in this church, whether it's, whether it's cleaning up on Saturdays to get ready or, or, or passing the elements of the Lord's table or working in the nursery or working in the Sunday school or leading a discipleship group or evangelizing your neighbors? Why do you have the ministry that you have? Because God has sovereignly and mercifully given you the opportunity to serve in that way. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, all this is from God, 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It is a gift to be able to serve the Lord in the same way that it's a gift to be saved by the Lord. Or as John the Baptist might put it, we cannot receive a single thing unless it comes to us from our sovereign God. We must always recognize that God is the one who sovereignly supplies the gifts, the opportunities, and the results of our ministry. He's sovereign, which means we can't complain about where He's placed us to serve, and we certainly can't covet the way He's using other servants elsewhere. John saw that because he recognized God's sovereignty. Additionally, here's a, here's a second insight from John's ministry we can take from this passage. We see this in verse 28, where we see the need to remember God's calling. The need to remember God's calling. You see, John the Baptist knew exactly what his calling was. Verse 26, John says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John knew he was not the Christ. He was called to prepare the way for the coming of the Christ. And this, by the way, this, this calling goes all the way back to Malachi chapter 3. John, John knew it straight from the prophecy of the Old Testament. Malachi 3 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There is going to be one who comes before the Messiah to prepare the way for the Messiah. And that was John the Baptist. John came and he knew his calling. He came preaching a baptism of repentance to prepare people to submit to the Messiah when he arrived. And this calling and remembering this calling is something that John never wavered on. That's why John's able to say to his disciples, I'm not the Christ, and you can bear witness to that. Guys, this jealousy, this coveting of Christ's ministry, I don't know where it's coming from, but it's not coming from me. John chapter 1, verse 27. Here's what John the Baptist says about Christ. He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Again, John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Again, John 1, verse 35 and 36. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. John's saying, That's what I said about Christ. That's what I believe about Christ. That's what I've been called to say about Christ. And you, my disciples, can bear witness that that's what I've said the whole time. John remembered his calling, and, and, and John's calling from God determined how he thought about his own ministry. His calling determined his expectations in ministry. Look, if I'm here to prepare the way for Christ, then when Christ comes, guess what's going to happen to me? I'm going to fade off the scene. His calling defined what success would look like in ministry. His disciples thought that the large crowds equaled success. John said, my calling is not large crowds. My calling is to faithfully prepare the way for Christ. And if Christ is in Judea, that means I've got to go to Samaria. 
Which, by the way, in John chapter 4, guess where Jesus goes? Samaria. His calling defined what success would look like. Faithfulness. And remembering his calling is what freed him from jealousy and covetousness in ministry. I don't have to fulfill the ministry of Christ because I'm not called to be the Christ. I don't have to fulfill the ministry of this guy over here. I'm not called to that ministry. I'm called and placed right here. And for us, we don't know our task in the same way that John knew his. There's no specific Old Testament prophecy that I can turn to that specifically speaks to Paul Shirley. If I tried to find one, the elders would quickly remove me. There's no, there's no specific prophecy that tells you exactly how you're going to serve the Lord in the same way that John the Baptist had it. So we don't know our task in the same way that John knew his task. However, our calling still affects the way that we should think about our ministry. Like John, we've, we've all been called to faithfully point people to Christ. And like John, we've all been uniquely gifted and providentially placed to fulfill that task. Which means that God's call in your life should impact the way you think about everything in your ministry. You say, well, how do I know God's calling for my life? How, how do I know what the Lord has called me to do? How do I know where the Lord has placed me to serve? Well, that's a whole message in and of itself. Maybe if I get invited back sometime, I'll do a whole message on calling or something. We don't have time for that this morning, but I can give you a, a few pastoral insights into how to determine your calling. You want to know what you're called to? First, look at the providential responsibilities in your life. Look at the providential responsibilities in your life. For instance, if you're here today, if you're a lady of this church, and God God has given you children, then part of your calling is to be a mother, right? If you have practical needs that you must meet in your home and, and you've got to go out and work to provide for your family, if you're, you're maybe the head of the house and you've got to provide for your family, guess what? That's what God's called you to do. You can look at the providential responsibilities that the Lord has placed in your life and you can say, this is where God has me, which means this is what God has called me to do. Maybe it's a young family, young kids. Maybe it's work responsibilities. Maybe it's a ministry in church. Maybe it's caring for an aged family member or a sick family member. These these tasks, these responsibilities of life, they're not getting in the way of your calling. They are a part of your calling. It's where God has you to serve. Look for providential the providential responsibilities of your life. Additionally, Begin to identify God's unique gifting in your life. You see, when the Lord saved us, He gave us a Spirit, and the Spirit gifts all of us in unique ways. Begin to recognize what that looks like. Begin to recognize how the Spirit has enabled you to serve the Lord. And you know the best way to figure out how the Spirit has gifted you to serve? It's not to go into your prayer closet and try to figure it out all by yourself. It's to be with God's people, to be under your leaders, to begin to ask those who are discipling you and shepherding you, where do you see me to be gifted? Because sometimes we can misunderstand those things in our own life, can't we? I mean, never, never, what I'm about to say would never and has never happened in this church. I know that. 
But we've heard of churches before where people get up to sing special music who think that they can sing special. But it's a different kind of special. (laughs) Never here. Sometimes people think they've been gifted by the Spirit in a special way. But the church around them is looking and saying, that's a different kind of special. That's why we need the input of other believers. Serve the church. Get input. Where do you see the Lord's gifted me? Start to recognize how the Spirit has empowered you. And, and, and don't run away from that. Don't, don't despise the fact that God's gifted you in one way and not another way. Receive that from the Lord and, and serve with joy in that. And really, that's the key. You want to know how you're called? Look for ministry opportunities. The Lord has, has gifted each one of us in a unique way. And the purpose of that gift is not so that we can show off our gift. And the purpose of that gift is not for our own personal benefit. The purpose of the gift is so that we can serve the body. You want to know what God's called you to do? Get involved with serving the body. First Peter 4 says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Imagine if John the Baptist had self-pitied because God had called him to prepare the way for Christ instead of calling him to be the Christ. I wish I was the Lamb of God. It would have been ridiculous, wouldn't it? Okay, now do the same thing in your life. Do the same thing when you're bitter about the responsibilities that God has providentially called you to fulfill and the gifts that he has provided to you. Oh, why am I not gifted like that guy? Why don't I not have the opportunities that she has? We can't covet other people's calling or minimize our own because they all come from God. We must always remember that God is the one who's called us to serve him and we can't be bitter about how that calling impacts our ministry. We've got to recognize God's sovereign. We, ha- we have to remember, God's the one who's called us to ministry. Additionally, in verse 29, here, here's a third insight from John's ministry. Here we see the need to rejoice in God's work. Rejoice in God's work. In other words, You have to learn to find joy in the fact that you are being used by God for eternal purposes. If you cannot rejoice, even in the incremental fruit that God produces through your ministry, you're not going to endure in serving. You recognize one soul that comes to Christ is a divine miracle. You you recognize just just one ounce of growth and sanctification towards Christ-likeness. It's a divine miracle. And if you get to be a part of that, you better learn to find joy in that. This is the greatest joy in life, to be a part of that work. John was overjoyed at it. Verse 29, John says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That ain't me. I don't have the bride that was given to Christ. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John the Baptist who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The Son had been given all things by the Father, including his people. 
The son's ministry was about securing the salvation of the bride through redemption. Christ came to die on the cross so, so that sinners could be saved through faith in him. If you're here today and you've never believed in Christ Jesus, here's what that means. It means you can believe today in Christ Jesus and be forgiven of all your sins. Why? Because of the ministry Christ was given to accomplish on the cross and through his resurrection. The bride was given to Christ to save, and that's what Christ did. Which means, among other things, the church doesn't belong to anyone. It belongs to Christ. And John knew that. And he was thankful to play any part in preparing the bride for an eternal relationship with Christ. I mean, John was especially overjoyed at his role. The opportunity to prepare the bride. The way it would work in, in the ancient world is, and I have three daughters, so I really like this. So li listen, listen how it would be done. Before the bridegroom can come get the bride and be married to her, uh, to him, he had to first prepare the home and make sure that he could care for the bride so that they would move out. I like that part. And a home was ready for the bride, which meant that the bridegroom was very busy. So whose job was it to go get the bride and prepare her? The friend. He would choose a friend, a loyal friend that he knew would not run off with his sweetheart. It was actually a law in this time. You, you couldn't run off with the bride, which is part of the imagery here. John's saying, I couldn't take the bride. Can't take the credit. It was just his job to go get the bride and get the bride ready. And then when the friend of the bridegroom comes back and brings the bride to the groom, it is his joy. For John, it was the joy of all joys to step aside and, and hear the joy between the, the groom and the bridegroom. John's joy in life was to see the completion of his ministry. John's joy in life came from being used by God to accomplish his eternal plan, not the pursuit of his own personal prominence. It did not steal one bit of John's joy that fewer people were coming to hear him speak than were going to hear Jesus speak. It might have injured the pride of his disciples or triggered their own insecurities. But John was more than content to see the bridegroom coming to the bride. And John's joy in ministry should get us thinking about the joy in our own life. What do you take joy in? What makes you happy? Are you overjoyed by the privilege of serving the Lord? If you can't relate to John's perspective at all, it might be because your mindset about ministry is skewed. If you view ministry as a necessity that gets in the way of what really brings you joy, there's something wrong with how you're thinking. You need to examine your heart to see what worldly idols might be in there preventing you from experiencing the greatest joy of all, the joy of serving the Lord and His people. It's interesting. At the end of this verse, John says, this joy of mine is now complete. Complete joy. You want complete joy? Complete joy sounds awesome, doesn't it? Not partial joy. Not in and out joy. Complete joy. 
it's a wonderful thought, and it's interesting because I looked it up in the New Testament. This phrase, or a very similar phrase like this, complete joy, it only occurs four times in the New Testament. And every time the New Testament talks about complete joy, it does so in the context of serving other people. Isn't that interesting? How many times are we serving begrudgingly? They don't even appreciate what I'm doing for them. Nobody sees this. Somebody's just going to come mess this up later. I can't believe this. And yet from a New Testament perspective, that's where complete joy comes from. Being used by the Lord for the benefit of other people. If we're going to think about ministry rightly, we need to rejoice in the opportunity of being used by God in the work that he is doing. Similarly, and here's the last point we're going to look at from this text before we transition to the Lord's table in just a moment. We see a final insight in verse 30 where we see that we must resolve to glorify God. So, So recognize God's sovereignty in your situation. Remember what God has called you to do. Rejoice in what God is doing in and through you. And then also resolve to glorify God. In other words, we have to keep in mind that ministry is not about elevating ourselves. It's about exalting our Lord. Like it's interesting. You know what the word ministry means? It just means serving. People often ask me as a pastor, when when were you called to the ministry? And I know what they mean by it. And usually I just kind of answer the question. But the fact of the matter is every believer was called to ministry the moment they were saved. The word ministry just means serving the Lord, which is what we have been called to do, to serve the Lord for his glory. And that certainly is what John wanted. Like look at verse 30, where, where, where you see maybe the most succinct and powerful statement on this resolve to glorify God in ministry that you'll find in all the New Testament. John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. I mean, the whole point of John's ministry was to make much of Christ, not himself. This wasn't just a part of his ministry. This was the totality of his ministry to glorify Christ. By the way, John's commitment to the glory of God, it was manifested in the way that God's glory, uh, commitment to God's glory is always manifest. People say, I just want to glorify God. I just want to glorify God. You ever want to test your heart to know, do you really want to glorify God? Because our hearts are deceitful. We've been saved from a deceitful heart, but there's some leftover deceitfulness in there. So when you say, all I want is God's glory, how do you test to say that that is genuine? Well, here's the answer. A desire for all God's glory is always matched up with personal humility. John says he must increase, but then he also said, I must decrease. I have to be made little in my ministry so that Christ can be made big through my ministry. A person who says they want to glorify God but then tries to glorify themselves, there's actually a word for that. A hypocrite. A passion for God's glory always manifests itself in personal humility. And that's what we see here on the part of John the Baptist. Said I must decrease, which by the way, I'm convinced it doesn't say in the text, but I'm convinced that John knew that this meant that he was likely to die. 
I think that's part of the reason he started preaching against Herod, his immorality. He said, I know I'm on my way out. I know I'm going to go one way. So I might as well go out preaching righteousness. But even here, John demonstrates his humility. When, when the light of Christ's ministry outshined his own popularity, he rejoiced in that because it brought God glory. When, when, when you walk around in the dark with a flashlight, you don't leave the flashlight on when the sun comes up. The light of the world appeared, which meant the lamp that God had sent in, his, in advance of him disappeared. It would have been tempting for John to preserve his own influence, promote his own continued significance, but he was ready to step out of the limelight so that Christ could shine in his ministry. And this is a reminder to us. God-honoring, Christ-exalting humility that seeks the glory of God in all things is an essential in ministry. Without humility, your ministry will be for your own glory. Remember I told you the word ministry just means serving, which means if your ministry is about yourself, then your ministry is self-serving. We don't want to be ministers for ourselves. We want to be ministers for God's glory. We want to be able to say, like John, he must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist was the greatest Old Testament prophet who ever lived. And his perspective on ministry reminds us that the essence of serving the Lord is to see Christ exalted, even when that means we must be humbled. And that, by the way, is exactly what John did, isn't it? John was arrested. He was executed for preaching righteousness. And in the process of being killed, his greatest ministry ambition was fulfilled. Christ was increased. And he was decreased. We pray with me. Lord, we do thank you for this reminder, this perspective from the, John the Baptist on how we should think through ministry. Lord, we do pray that you would cultivate in our hearts a humility that seeks your glory. And Lord, we pray, even as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, uh, we pray that our, our hearts would be genuine in our faith for you and our desire to see you glorified. Lord, may Christ be increased and may we decrease. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.